Back in the 80s, when I was a young guy, young father, there was a lot of hoopla among conservative Christians around what they were calling secular humanism. And as I was listening to the way people described it, they talked about it like it was this pervasive entity that infiltrated Hollywood, it infiltrated educational systems. They treated it like it was a systemic evil that we had to eradicate. Now, when we tell them that that's actually what racism is, that all of a sudden it's not systemic, it's individual. That's right. So I just think that white evangelicalism has been inconsistent in it. It's not like they are blind to the reality of systemic evil. They just don't want to acknowledge it because it means more work than just having people respond to an altar call. Welcome to season two of the Shades of Hope podcast. These are frank conversations between two friends who are committed to the role of the church in the work of racial justice. These conversations will help you understand how Jesus's life and ministry were about justice for all people and will inspire you to actively engage in the work of reconciliation and justice wherever you find yourself. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Shades of Hope. It is great to be with you. My name is Jeff Krajewski. I'm the lead pastor at Common Ground Church in Indianapolis, Indiana. And as always, am pleased to be joined by my mentor and friend and co-host, Dr. Clarence Moore. Dr. Moore, how are you today? I am great. And you are just too kind to call me your mentor. You know, they say iron sharpens iron, and it has just been a great journey, Pastor Jeff, to journey with you in these critical, transparent, sometimes challenging conversations. And so I'm glad, and I'm excited about our guest today. Yes, yes. And this is version two of our conversation, but only version one for you who are listening because we had some audio difficulties, but it is our pleasure to welcome Dr. Dennis Edwards to the podcast. Dr. Edwards has been very gracious to fit us into a very busy schedule that he has writing and teaching and leading. And currently he's the associate professor of New Testament. I'm going to let him tell a little bit about his interim position. I'll let him tell us about that. But he's at North Park University in Chicago, where he's also serving as interim dean of faculty. Is that correct? At the seminary, not the university, but North Park Theological Seminary. Mm -hmm. Seminary. Mm -hmm. Great. He's got his Bachelor of Science in Chemical Engineering from Cornell. Mm-hmm. He did an MDiv in Urban Ministry at Trinity Evangelical, an MA in Biblical Studies at Catholic University of America, and a PhD in Biblical Studies at Catholic University mm-hmm. of America. Yeah. In addition to being an academic, he served the church as a pastor, a church planter, an urban ministry leader, and an author. He's written a fantastic commentary on First Peter that I have used and worn out. <laughs> but the reason that we are very excited to have our listeners meet Dr. Edwards is because of the release of a fantastic book called Might from the Margins. And the subtitle is The Gospel's Power to Turn the Tables on Injustice. It's a fantastic book on how marginalized Christians are already changing the face of the church. And it asks a very important question. Will we embrace the power to change the church's heart? Dr. Edwards, Mm. it is a pleasure to welcome you to the Shades of Hope podcast. Amen. It is my joy to be with you, Pastor Jeff, Pastor Clarence. It's a delight to learn about your work, and you're so kind to have me be part of this. So thank you. 
Well, and when we go through the resume, the thing that always strikes me, and we've had conversations before, you've done some work and kind of helping group of pastors work through First Peter. Mm-hmm. The thing that I've always appreciated is that you blend academy and pastoral local ministry in such a, a symbiotic way. You understand intellectually and theologically the big concepts, but you make them very accessible to those of us on the ground who are starting to are trying to work some of these things out. And so I just really appreciate just in general, the work that you do. It's been a blessing to me, but also the book, the book is fantastic. Thank you so much. And Might from the Margins, all of the details for where to get the book and how to get the book will be linked in the show notes. Well, I'm just going to send them to your website because there's other resources there that are fantastic yes. as well. Thank you so much. But just as we start, a general question, mm-hmm. why this book? <laughs> why now? Yeah. And who were you trying to write this book for? Yes, thank you. First, I, let me just say thank you for all those kind words you said. I mean, I feel like it's an answer to prayer that it was my prayer to be able to study and to get some academic background and but also to make sure that what we do in the so-called ivory tower is never really distinct from what happens in the pews. I mean, we're connected. Yeah. We're connected. Yeah. Well, what happened was that I mean, I grew up in New York in the 60s and I'm a product of being bused to a neighborhood outside of my own. I grew up in an African-American neighborhood, got bused to a white neighborhood. So all my life, I've been trying to negotiate what does it mean to be often the only Black person in certain spaces or one of very few. And that was true in Christian circles too. So that's a little background to say that I often wound up in these spaces where I had to somehow speak in a white setting or be part of so-called racial reconciliation efforts. And a lot of that time, it seemed like most of our energy was trying to get white people to do something they didn't want to do, which was to (laughs) humble themselves to learn from people who don't look like them. And I found myself after 25 years or so, it's probably been 30 years of work, but it was somewhere around that 20 something year point where I said, this is ridiculous. In some ways, it's, it's sort of like uh, when you're spending all this energy that I felt like I wasn't acknowledging, at least not forthrightly, the power that's already present in people who have been marginalized by white Christianity. So the book came out of that. I said, you know what? I want to talk about the power that we already have in Christ because of our marginalized position. We are living a life that reflects more the first century church than not, you know? So that was what was in my mind. So it was my reconciliation energy efforts, the marginalization and the realization that we have power already. And then also the sense that, to get to your last question, is that we tend to center white people in almost all the conversations we have about race to the point where it's like our goal is to ease white people's anxieties. So I said, you know what? I don't want to center white people in this work. I want to say that this is about the solidarity of the marginalized, if you will. So that's kind of the genesis of the book. It's such a paradoxical statement from people of privilege, might from (laughs) the margins. I love that. I can't help but think. Thank you. (laughs) I may have to send you a donation because I'm gonna (laughs) I'm gonna do a series on that. I'm gonna get your book. Well, buying a book is that's 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 what it is. Okay, good. Because I can see David and Goliath's story. Might from the margins. Thank you. Thank you. But that's a biblical theme, right? That runs through the Old Testament and the New Testament is that God chooses what's 
weak in the eyes of the world to confound yes. the wise. I mean, that's First Corinthians, right? But that's Absolutely. all throughout the Bible. But for all some reason, yeah, thank you. But for some reason, it feels like we've morphed it into saying it's Christianity is the tool of the powerful to somehow dominate the world. And in the last few years, the way white evangelicalism has talked about whether it's the former president or the way America is supposed to be, it's always laden with this sense of power and privilege right. and domination. And like, that's not the way of the scriptures. No. Well, and Jesus actually told the disciples, that's what the Gentiles do. Exactly. <laughs> they lord it over, but not mm -hmm. so with not you. Not so, so with, with you. you. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. And you alluded to one of the things that we've been talking about throughout this podcast, Dr. Edwards, when you talked about the whole aspect of humility, that if our white brothers and sisters need to move the needle toward justice, need to walk in humility to be able to learn from those of us that are actually navigating the margins. Thank you. You know, that notion hit me so much that while I was finishing up that book, I had conversation with another publisher who also wanted to have my academic life speak into practical concerns. So I actually have a draft of an entire book on biblical humility that is right now going through a review process with InterVarsity. And hopefully it'll you know pass muster. I like it anyway, but yeah. we'll see. We'll see what they say. <laughs> but the point is what you just said is that humility is a misunderstood virtue. You know, we tend to think mm -hmm. of it as docility or being a doormat or so forth. But for me, humility asks the question, why do we allow people to be doormats? Yeah. You know, so humility says, I want to see, I want to feel, I want to understand. Humility asks questions rather than tells everybody what the answers are supposed to be. So I'm glad that you picked up on that. That resonates with me a great deal. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. In the book, you write, Christianity's power problem is the result of well-intentioned Christians who fail to understand or appreciate systemic evil, the sin that permeates all human structures. Mm -hmm. Now, this whole idea of systemic versus individual, the conversation on the origins of all of these theories on racial injustice is a hot topic right now. Yes. And it's hotly contested, particularly within the church. And, you know, CRT, critical race theory, is seen as an enemy of the gospel. Right. Not even in that conversation, but just in your statement, and particularly in that chapter, what are the effects? What are the downstream effects of that failure in the church today? Yes, thank you. You know, the, the practical outworkings that we tend to say that if we could just get people saved— and if they just could believe in Jesus, we would solve the problems of our world, right? So for them, that's the practical outworkings, right? You preach yep. a conversion-type message, you get people to respond in an altar call kind of way, and then that fixes the problem. Well, clearly that's not been the case, all right? We've gone through great awakenings, we've gone through all kinds of stuff in our country. So my statement is to say, it is not about these individual conversion experiences because they never address the power of sin in a very pervasive way. Uh, just one last comment on that. Back in the 80s, when I was a young guy, young father, there was a lot of hoopla among conservative Christians around what they were calling secular humanism. 
Right. And they didn't like, you know, the Democratic candidate at the time was Walter Mondale. And I remember they kept saying it's secular humanism. And as I was listening to the way people described it, they talked about it like it was this pervasive entity that infiltrated Hollywood. It infiltrated educational systems. They treated it like it was a systemic evil that we had to eradicate. Now, when we tell them that that's actually what racism is, that all of a sudden it's not systemic, it's individual. That's right. So I just think that white evangelicalism has been inconsistent in it. It's not like they are blind to the reality of systemic evil. They just don't want to acknowledge it because it means more work than just having people respond to an altar call. Wow. Yeah. And what's the impact mm-hmm. on the local congregation mm-hmm. when we refuse to acknowledge the way in which sin infects the system? Yeah, thank you. That was that was really part of your question originally. <laughs> that's fine. No, that's I, fine. I was I was yeah. on a roll about this, but I think yeah, on a on a local absolutely yes. <laughs> but on that local level, I think what happens is we tend to miss the reality of evil in our communities, and we miss the way we can minister to people more broadly. So, for example, if I have a family that comes to the church and they're experiencing some issues in the school district, right? Maybe there's some mm-hmm. racist issues. The church will tend to say, oh, that's just the way you're perceiving things. It's just an individual reality. And they'll never address perhaps some structural things that are happening in that school. So the reality of it is is the congregation misses out on an opportunity to address sin in a Jesus-like way and will always look at it this individual way, right? So when you do that, the congregation then will lose people who are being hurt and marginalized by systems. They'll not see it. And then what's even worse is that they'll actually participate in this unjust system, even if they don't understand that they are. So you might say you love me, but if you don't love me enough to see that my kids are getting a good education in the school system, then what you're saying is you don't really love me. You might like that I'm around, but you don't love me enough to see the injustices that are happening to me. So I think the churches miss out on opportunities to love in a Jesus-like way. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. You do a deep dive in the book into the idea of power, Mm. and you look at it from all different angles and aspects, particularly through the Christian lens. And as a white reader, not your primary audience, but as a white reader, as I look through the chapter headings even, they all make sense to me until I get to the one where it's titled The Power of Anger. (laughs) and I grew up in a context where anger is a bad thing. We just don't express it. We, you know, keep it down. And I also exist with brothers and sisters of color who I regularly hear them trying to not be the angry black man or the angry black woman. Why is the power of anger such an important aspect in understanding the power that the marginalized have for the gospel? Thank you. Well, you hit on a lot of it right there that Christians at times conveniently, well, they can remove their allegiance or assign their support based on how angry they think somebody is or not, right? So white Christians have done it right, the angry black woman, the angry black man. So mm-hmm. if I don't say my message in the way that they want to hear it, they can dismiss me because anger, then they would think, well, that's not of God, so I don't have to listen. But I wanted to make a case that anger is very much a godly or can be a godly response to injustice 
In fact, I would argue it ought to be the godly response to injustice. I can't imagine the Old Testament prophets not being called angry. I, I can't imagine Paul not being angry at times. So what I did was I tried to show us in that chapter where Jesus is described as angry or agitated or indignant, the kind of way we translate those words, particularly in the Gospel of Mark. And also the Ephesians passage, be angry, but don't sin. There's some scholars who are very clear that that be angry is a command. Some folks will argue that, but grammatically it can very well be. In fact, it is a command. So my point though was to say, anger is an appropriate response to injustice, but the way we deal with it is to deal with the issue. In your anger, you don't sin, but then it says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, deal with the anger, but you deal with the anger by dealing with what provoked it, right? Which in the case of justice means we deal with the injustice. So yeah, I just, I feel like it's a convenient excuse to say, oh, you're angry, so I don't have to listen to you. No, anger is appropriate. Yep. That's a great point. You know, I used to work in corporate America Hmm. and I was middle management for General Motors for many years. And I would often sit in sessions. And of course that at the time, you know, diversity back in the late nineties was this buzzword and then sending all the managers through sensitivity training and Mm. all, you know, all they were doing was checking boxes, you know, really, they didn't really aspire to, to make a difference in the lives of the marginalized. But I remember being in a meeting and I expressed my thoughts as I do on this podcast. (laughs) And that's exactly what happened to me. A couple of white coworkers Uh. said, you're angry. And they literally dismissed anything I had to say throughout that whole workshop. And at the time, I didn't know how to deal with that. Right, right. But uh, now I know it's one of their coping strategies and one of their strategies to to kind of look the other way. And I wish I'd known then I would have called them on it. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Dr. Moore, I would just be interested now, knowing what you know, if you found yourself in that spot today, how would you handle that? Yeah, I would say you're right. (laughs) I am angry. (laughs) (laughs) And it is an appropriate anger. And I believe that if we don't listen to my anger and the anger of those that are part of our team trying to move, trying to create a profitable business, Mm. it becomes a liability Mm. to the growth of our product. Yeah, When you have a certain segment of your workforce that you are ignoring. Yeah, amen. You know, or not hearing. And so, mm. but the power of anger. Yeah. I preached about that last Sunday oh. as I talked about what happened when Jesus went to the temple. Yes, yes. Right before resurrection on that Monday after Palm Sunday. And I talked about the power of calibration, that the way they were doing church was not the way God wanted them to do church. And Christ came in with this anger a righteous anger, as you alluded to, this righteous anger so that he could calibrate or make an adjustment Hmm. so that the church would become the church that he meant it to be. And that's exactly what you're saying here is that there needs to be a calibration today in the way we do church. Yeah. And so speak to that. Yeah, no, I like that. You know, it's funny. I did not treat that passage, but we hinted at it in the subtitle, Uh turning the tables on injustice. That was actually hinted at that very incident because he turned over the tables. When you talked about calibrating, you're right. I mean, there's a sense that 
institutions can almost forget their main core mission because they need to survive. Yeah. So it appeared that what was happening in the temple back then, at least I won't say universally, and I don't want to cast too big a net, but at least in some aspects, there was an undermining of the purpose of the temple that Jesus had to recalibrate, right? He says, my house would be a house of prayer for all people. Right. You've made it a den of, well, he quotes Jeremiah, a den of thieves or a den of robbers. So the idea is, wait, this is supposed to be a prayer house for all people. So when we come back to the role of the church, you know, we can come up with a whole list of metaphors for the church, but whatever the church is supposed to be, it's got to at least raise a voice and raise the profile of those most likely to be left behind. And instead, yes. we seem to cater to the most powerful. I always find it funny that, you know, the rich young ruler, we always call him, right? Because <laughs> combining a couple of gospel stories, we put those words together, rich, young ruler. So if somebody like that came into our churches, we like them rich, yep. Yep. we like them young, right? and yes. we like people who've got leadership skills, you know? And, right. and, I, and yeah. I jokingly say he was probably handsome too, you know? And so he, <laughs> so he had all the stuff that we like. And Jesus yeah. let this guy walk away. He let him walk away. And in our world, we'd be chasing after this person, trying to figure out how can we get you in here? You know, we'll make it easy for you in some way. We won't ask too much of you because we need rich, young leaders in the church. You know, <laughs> it just made me laugh because that whole recalibrating that you said, I think to, for me, it asked the question, what are we really about? Right. And yeah. so mm -hmm. anyway, that's what you got me thinking about that. <laughs> yeah. That's a powerful approach to that, too, because I think that and I was just intrigued and I meant to say it earlier, but. You started with a chemical background. <laughs> you studied chemistry, and I thought, well, how, how wonderful is it for God to take a chemist <laughs> and move him into a theological arena because the church really is a laboratory. Oh, my goodness. I, well, that, now that's good. That's good. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> He's good like that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to yeah. work that. I'm going to have to work that one because I work have not been doing that. Uh, <laughs> professor, because the church is a laboratory, and your chemical tenacities and... You can work at that thing, Doc. I, I, can, I have to. I had a tense meeting, and when we left, one of the people said to me, well, you know, we're all human beings. We're all like just bumping around into each other. And I said, oh, like molecules. And I said, and when we bump into each other, it creates friction and heat, and the temperature goes up. I said, there's a lot of kinetic energy. But it started making me think about how... <laughs> <laughs> when you said the church is a laboratory, I thought, yeah. And in a laboratory, you allow for trial and error. You know, sometimes things work and sometimes they don't work. And you go back and try to figure it out. But in the church, it's almost like we don't give that much freedom and grace to try it out and experiment and work it out. It's like you got to have all the answers. Mm, and uh, I think scientists don't think that way even. You know, so no, anyway, yeah, I, that's right. you got me going here. I'm going to think about that, Rev. I've got to think about it. <laughs> Um, well, and I'm interested in that whole idea of, you know, maybe following that trail of why is it that we don't allow for more dynamic and potentially volatile relational reactions within the church? What is it that we are afraid of? Because right now we're in a big sort, you know, everybody's moving to more homogeneity and less diversity right now. Yeah, man. And I don't know what your experience is up in Chicago and in, even institutionally at a university. What are some of the effects of this sorting? And what are maybe some of the prophetic downstream wow. problems that we may be in for? Yeah. Wow. Now, there's a lot to that question. You know, you're right. I feel like we are becoming more polarized. The initial part of your question had me thinking about, you know, what are we afraid of? 
and there's something about evangelicalism, and that tends to be the first wave of what I think about as evangelical, because that's the world I've been exposed to a lot in my life. But I do think in evangelicalism, there's a, there's a fear of being wrong. Mm. So back when I was a young guy, it was Josh McDowell, evidence that demands a verdict. You know, we had yep. to prove to the yep. world that we were smart and that we had the right answers. We could prove stuff, right? So I still think there's something lingering like that. So it's like if we... And I say we in a broad sense of that word because I don't really mean it to apply to me. But if we Christians think that as if we don't have all the answers, then we act as if we have nothing to offer the rest of the world. Like we have to give them the answers. You know, Jesus is the answer for the world today. So we feel like we have to give them answers to all their questions. And then if we yep. don't know the answer, I've seen some people manufacture one because it's yep. like we can't not know. And I think it's so much healthier if you say, you know what? I don't know. This is what I think, and this is what I'd like to explore together. And, I mean, I've done that with my own kids. They'll ask me stuff, and I'm like, I don't know. Let's look it up, or let's explore (laughs) this, or let's think about it. And I've done that as a teacher. That's so much more inviting and inclusive. So if I come to you and I say, I feel like I have to, this happened for real. This white family came to me. I was speaking at a camp, and this white pastor came to me, and he wasn't a pastor, but he, he was close to his pastor. And he was wearing this big American flag on his shirt, and he was really kind of, mm-hmm. you know, rah-rah stuff. He said, I don't understand why there's this black family in the church, and they left. And on their way out, they said, we don't have to be white to be Christian. And the guy said, we're not trying to make him be white. We just do things by the Bible, he said. And this is the naivete. He said, we do. I said, do things by the Bible. I said, okay. So I said, you probably worship at 11 o'clock in the morning. Is that in the Bible? I said, you're singing hymns from Europe. I said, is that in the Bible? I, so I started listing off all these things that he does culturally. Right. Mm-hmm. And he, he just stood there and looked at me. So, I mean, what would have been better is to ask that guy, how are you experiencing what we're doing? And then have a conversation about it. If that family was even interested in staying. But instead, no, we're right. We're doing it by the Bible. And that's the kind of thing that stops conversation and it stops growth. Yeah. yeah. Yep. The curiosity, I think that peace is lost in modern, particularly evangelicalism. You go to Eastern Orthodoxy, they're wondering about everything. But like <laughs> in modern North American, and I'm just going to go ahead and name white evangelicalism, the curiosity aspect of relationship with other people and even with God, Mm. just the wonder of what he may be up to. It just is absent in our relation with each other. And so we never ask the question. We just make the statement and then make the assumption. Yeah. And I'm not so sure it's not intentional for many in the white evangelical world. Oh yeah. Because they are not willing to go back into the laboratory Yeah, and take a look at how they've been formed. Amen. And I think you hit on that, Rev. I feel like that whole fear over critical race theory and and even their misunderstanding of what it is, there's this fear of looking back at the damage that the country has done to some. And it's fine to celebrate all the good things, you know? Yeah. But you also have to look back at the hard things. And when you don't do that, I mean, I don't think any pastor, when they're trying to do any like marital counseling or any, I think almost everyone would say, let's figure out where things went wrong. Or to some exactly. degree or another, they were wanting so like, what happened? Right. But we don't want to do that with the country. And I don't understand that. It seems yeah. to me that's one of the only ways you move forward is to be honest about the past. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. How many marital counseling sessions have you been in where the offense happens? You just like, hey, just ignore that. Right. Don't worry right. about it. But we're here now. 
Well, yeah, but we're here now for a reason because something happened. Because something happened, <laughs> so right? So we should talk about it, shouldn't we? Yes, you know? exactly. The other thing that I thought about when you brought that up was when you do premarital counseling, a lot of times what you do is you say, well, tell me about your family of origin. Where do you come from? What's your story? Well said. Because that affects who you are yes. and then who you're going to become together. Amen. Some of that stuff you need to be able to name and leave in the past. And some of it you need to bring forward with you, yeah. but you can't do it if you don't talk about Amen. it. Amen. You know, that's really good, Pastor Jeff. In fact, I want to hold on to that one for the future because, <laughs> I mean, I, I hadn't put those two together, but that is, is how we do premarital counseling. And more so now than even when I was younger, because the emotional intelligence has helped us to ask those kind of questions. That's right. But that's a great example. Thank you. That is awesome. <laughs> and I'm like the white evangelical in those kind of sessions with my wife. It's like, I, I don't, I'm not going to admit. <laughs> Are there any microphones yeah. in this room? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nope. I don't want to talk about it. I said, I'm sorry. That's enough. Uh, you know? And my wife wants to go back and dissect everything. I don't want to recapitulate. Yeah. I, let's move on. Let's move on. No, it's, it's hard, but you know, it's got to be done. Right. Yep. And the counselor says, no, 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 Mr. Moore, you've got, to go back. Amen. If you're going to rebuild this thing, look at the, Amen. the fragments and the fountain foundations. And come on, if you really love this person, you're willing to do that. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Well said. And that's what, what we should say to our white brothers mm-hmm. and sisters that if you love like God loves, Amen. you're willing to yeah. sit down at the table of reconciliation. Yeah. Amen. Well, Reverend Moore, I want to pick up on that love thing you just said, because that's Mm -hmm. powerful to me. But for your wife, let's play out that metaphor of the marriage counseling. If your wife loves herself, then she's going to want that honesty from you. In other words, it's not just about her loving you. It's about her loving herself. That's good. Mm. Because if she didn't love herself, she would maybe just accept whatever's happening and move on, right? Right. So when I got to the chapter on love, I thought, you know what? So many times I've been in these conversations about love that the people want you to get to the end of your book or end of your rant or your end of your sermon or whatever and just say, we can all just, you know, get along and everything's uh-huh. cool. But I didn't want to do that. When I got to the end and when I talked about love, I first started talking about how we as minoritized people need to love ourselves because so much in society has taught us not to love ourselves, not to love our color, not to love where we came from, not to love our story. But once you learn how to love yourself, then you can be more confident Absolutely. Of asking the questions and even demanding that we have those sit downs and honest discussions, you know? So, excellent point. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. That was good. <laughs> excellent point. Well, and it's funny that you did because I was at that chapter <laughs> and I was going to ask the question because you write that many African Americans grew up with the message not only that God sanctioned slavery, but there was something inherently wrong. That's right. With being black. And so I imagine that as you, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. Yeah. Go a little bit further in terms of sort of the liberation that you were hoping to give by writing that chapter. Yeah. Mm. You know, in some ways, as I was writing that chapter, I was thinking, okay, I was born at the tail end of the baby boom. So maybe it's not true for my kids or other young folks, but there were a lot of us. And I know for certainly older people where we were taught, we had to defer to white people to keep order. We had to even, we almost were trained to see ourselves as less significant. And that has to be broken too, right? So for me, it was important because I I came up in an era where James Brown is singing, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. And it's almost like 
like you're almost embarrassed to say that, you know, or, you know, and then I got to the point where he realized, wait, no, I can say that. So for white people to get all upset with Black Lives Matter, I'm like, I have no sympathy for their emotional response to Black Lives Matter because when we get treated like we don't matter, we need to rally. We rallied with Say It Loud and Black and Proud. We rallied with the way we've done music and food and life and so much of our expression. So I wanted to encourage that. I wanted to make that be part of that chapter because people who have been pushed to the side can often be almost ashamed of their place. And just to put this in another biblical category, I'm not a sociologist, but think about, this is at the end of 1 Peter, and Pastor Jeff remembers because we talked about this with 1 Peter, but in chapter 4, verse 16, he talks about them about not being ashamed at the name Christian. And it's only one of a couple of times the word Christian is used in the whole New Testament, but most people think it was used as an insult. You know, those Christian people, those Christ-like people, right. like Herodian is Christian in this, its grammatically similar kind of structure. But the point is, in an honor-shame culture where you could be shamed for having allegiance to certain people and not another way, he says, oh, God is not ashamed of you, you know, and don't have any shame of being called Christian. And I think that's what I'm trying to say is that we can love ourselves yeah. and there need not be any shame in the way God made us, you know? So that was important for me to assert that because I think that goes a long way for us to sense our empowerment. You know? Yep. Awesome. Just briefly, this is a word that's probably not as familiar to white readers as it may be to your black readers, but talk a little bit about diaspora. Oh, yeah. Why is it important for that word and the definition that it brings to be an identity marker mm. for people on the margins? Why is that helpful? Yeah, thank you. You know, it's interesting. When I was working through First Peter, that's the language that he uses to describe this community that even though they may be ethnically alike, they are marginalized probably because of their faith, most likely. Mm -hmm. Willie Jennings, who is just a beautiful, powerful writer, he writes about diaspora in his Acts commentary with some powerful language of how diaspora signals this fragmented place, this tenuous place where your status as he puts it, is on loan to the empire, right? Mm. It's a vulnerable place, but he says it's also a powerful place because it engenders faith and such. So I was thinking about, you know, when I was younger and reading Christianity Today, and I would see these ads in there, this is the hard copy, and these ads would come in for Find Your Family Crest. And at first I laughed at that, you know, and I said, you know, I could put the name Edwards in there and go and get some white family in England somewhere. But then I started to get offended the more I saw it because I said, oh, so your market, you know, is people of white European. Right. You don't even want me in here. You know, this is not a magazine for me, clearly. Right. So I'm a member of a diaspora. I am removed from my homeland. But in that place of being removed, there's a learned sense of power of saying, you know, I've had to figure out a way to be here. I'm not home, so I have to figure out. And when I figure out a way to be here, that's a strength. And I do think that the marginalized people, you know, immigrants, people of faith who have been pushed to the side, have a power that they've learned that is actually reflective of the way of Jesus to be, you know, this Jew and under the Roman Empire, to learn this way of maneuvering when, when you're not welcome all the time. You know, yeah. so anyway, I mean, there's a lot I could say about that, but you're getting the gist of my point, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, and you think about there are lots of diaspora communities right now. One is being created right now uh, yeah. in Ukraine, Poland and all of the region. It's interesting to see the response 
of particularly my tribe, white evangelicals, when this particular diaspora moment is happening. Yeah. But when other moments are happening, my tribe reacts very differently. Yeah. I don't know if either of you have noticed the irony there. Hmm. Or if I just pointed it, I'm sure you did, but I would be interested in your thoughts on how. It's very obvious that there's a big difference between the persecution of the Ukrainians and their diaspora moment than it would have been for Haitians or even Syrians. It's right in your face, even the coverage of it all. And so it speaks sometimes to the hypocrisy of the country we love. Yeah. Well said. You know, I never want to play people's pain against each other. Right. But there is a way that our country has at times done a divide and conquer and has alienated two groups at the same time, you know, by playing one against the other. We've seen this with our Asian American friends who for a long time, in some ways, were made to be the so-called model minority and then played them against us as African-Americans. And I've been so honored that my brothers and sisters, when they started the Asian American Christian Collaborative, they've been so outspoken against injustice toward African-Americans. And it's Mm -hmm. led to what I was really praying for, a solidarity of the marginalized. So now I'm seeing relationships between African-American Christians and Asian-American Christians strengthened and not yeah. letting white society dictate who we are, or what our identity is, you know. So that's an important piece, I think, that comes out of this diaspora status. Wow. Also, another chapter in the book is the power of solidarity. Right. So just right. making Thank sure you. that we're staying on topic. But yes, yep. I think that's why the book is so beautiful, is that you, you. you come at it from every angle and you try to uncover every stone. And yet, I would say, biblically faithful. Like you start with the story you. and you work your way out. And I would also say appropriately convictional in its mm. in landing. Mm. And I would say as not a member of the primary audience that you're writing for, I could imagine conviction mm. being like, oh, yeah, I do need to love myself. There's a convicting attitude to that. But then I would also say for white Christian readers as well, this is a must read look into wow. our brothers and sisters who have a lot to teach us. Wow. Well, I'm honored that you would say that. Thank you so much. You know, my the book I don't think has been flying off the bookshelves, but I have had some people really respond similarly to you that they're seeing, I mean, I try to do the exegesis and then I also speak to some real life situations and I have found some people seeing that resonate with them, you know? So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Well, as I alluded to earlier, it's paradoxical, <laughs> but it's theological. Thank you. And so mm-hmm. one thing we're excited about, you know, and having incredible minds like you on our podcast is that you always remind us that your theories and your thoughts are biblically founded. Yeah. yeah. The foundation of how you're approaching all of your research is scriptural. And we Amen. appreciate academics like yourself mm. getting in this ruckus with us as we try to mm. Make the church that without spotless, without a spot without a or spot wrinkle. wrinkle. That's yeah, what I got to you. Get That's rid right. of some of those wrinkles and spots. Amen. I got you. Thank you. I'm honored by that. Thank you. <laughs> well, 
thank you so much for being with us. I also love your social media handle. <laughs> so we've had Dr. J on the podcast. Oh. And now we've got Dr. Dre. Okay. <laughs> so it, it's revdrdre.com is your website. But I think that's all of your social media handles as well, right? It is. It is. Yes, it is. Oh, that's Twitter, awesome. Twitter, Instagram. Rev Dr. Dre. Yep. Yep. <laughs> And so I'll get all that in the show notes along with your website, thank along you. with links to the book and the First Peter commentary. Oh, awesome. And thank you again thank you. for being generous with us and yeah. coming back and yeah. blessings on your continued work. We'll be praying about the manuscript that's being edited right now and all of the other things that you're doing at the university and at the seminary. Dr. Dennis Edwards, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Oh, I am honored. Thank you so much for letting me be part of this conversation. God bless you. God bless you, Dan. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Shades of Hope. We would like to hear from you. Send us your thoughts and questions at shadesofhopepodcast at gmail.com. That's shadesofhopepodcast at gmail.com. We would also appreciate it if you could leave us a review and rate us wherever you access this podcast. Thank you again, and may God bless you as you follow Jesus and strive to make this world a better place for all of God's children. Mm -hmm.